Welcome to the podcast. But before we get into the actual podcast, uh, we want to let you guys know that Denny and I are going to be in a couple of different places. Right now, we're going to be separate because we need to spend our time apart. Uh, but I will be coming this Friday. If you're listening to the podcast, I will be Friday and Saturday uh, at the Hoppy Halloween competition in Fargo, North Dakota, where I'm going to be giving a little bit of a talk and helping judge. And of course, running around Fargo, trying to not be too cold. Remember, I live in Southern California, and it's already colder in Fargo than I see at the depths of my winter. Oh, boy. Denny, what about you? <laughs> um, in the December, uh, on the 10th of December, I'm going to be in St. Louis with the St. Louis Brews for their uh, their competition and dinner afterwards. I'll be talking more about that as we get a little bit closer to the date. But just keep in mind that if you're in the St. Louis area, uh, I'll be around uh, on uh, December 10th, and maybe we can get together for a beer. Yeah, Talk and remember, you. don't forget, register for the competitions, re uh, register to judge or steward, and come see us speak. This episode of the Experimental Brewing Podcast is brought to you by Pico Brew, makers of the Zymatic and Pico Brewing Systems. The brewing systems of the future are here now. Discover how easy and rewarding it is to make great beer with Pico Brew. And by Craftmeister and BTF Iota 4. When you absolutely positively need to make sure every surface is clean, bust out the cleaner with professional power and home brewer safety. Make better beer with better chemistry. Choose Craftmeister. And by NicoBrew.com. NicoBrew.com is your one-stop hop shop where Nico and his kilt take care of all your hop needs with nitrogen flush mylar and only $5 to ship anywhere in the U.S. and with great international rates. If you're a pro brewer or homebrew shop owner, get a commercial account at pro.nicobrew.com to take full advantage of Nico and his kilt. And by BrewGuru a free smartphone app made by our friends at the American Homebrewers Association. BrewGuru helps beer lovers save money on beer and beer brewing supplies, and it serves up exclusive content from Zymergy Magazine and homebrewersassociation.org. BrewGuru is free for Android, iPhone, and iPad. Check it out. Y-Yeast Laboratories has provided fresh, premium liquid yeast cultures worldwide since 1986. Choose from our product collection of ale, lager, German wheat, Belgian ale, wine, malolactic, or wild and sour strains for your next fermentation creation. We're here to help you ferment premium products like the professional. Why yeast? And by you, our listeners. Go to experimentalbrew.com to help support us. Click on the Patreon link to donate whatever amount you like to the podcast and our charities. Click on the Brew Your Own Magazine link to subscribe to BYO, or click on the AHA link to join the American Homebrewers Association. Part of the proceeds from those will go to help support the podcast. And thanks for your support. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Experimental Brewing with Denny and Drew. I'm Denny Kahn. And I'm Drew Beecham. Together, we're the authors of Experimental Homebrewing, Mad Science in the Pursuit of Great Beer, and Homebrew All-Stars, where we talk to 25 of the world's best homebrewers and let them teach you how to brew their way. Uh, between the two of us, we have nearly 40 years of homebrewing experience, 
Now, I'm the guy known for weird beer and strange ideas. Yes, he is. And I'm the guy known for questioning the conventional wisdom and testing it out. All right. And on today's episode, we're done with questions. I can't believe it. But I know, man. I know. And Denny and I are fresh off of a, a giant trip that we took over to Portland. Uh, you guys are going to be hearing a lot of content in the next couple of weeks coming from that. And today we're actually going to start. But first, we're going to start, as we always do, with feedback. We're going to go to the pub and we're going to talk about the big news that everybody's talking about in the homebrew industry, along with a couple of uh, more lighthearted topics. In the library, we're going to have a little bit of fun and another podcast that we think that you guys might be interested in. We're going to stop by the brewery and talk about some new parts that we have from our friends over at Jaded. Uh, and then the lab. That's right. It's time for the lab. And we're going to talk about our results from our first New England IPA experiment, 1056 versus 1318. Uh, then uh, we're off to FH Steinbart's real quick. Uh, first of our Portland stops that we made. And we're going to just have a brief little interlude there. Uh, talk about a local loss that they had and also why Steinbart's is such a cool shop. Yeah, it is, man. There's no doubt about that. Yeah, you know, it's kind of fun when I go to a, a homebrew shop of uh, not anywhere near where I'm normally at, and I still buy parts and bring them home. That's right. <laughs> I couldn't believe it, man. Drew was shopping. Hey, what can I say? I am a homebrewer at heart. And then in our second segment, we're going to sit down with good old Larry. Uh, you'll meet Larry. Larry is now the uh, brewer at Pono Brewing Company in Portland, but uh, Larry is actually partially to blame for us having this podcast, and you'll find out why when we get there. And of course, we'll answer some of your questions. And we'll talk about something other than beer. Wow, that sounds like a really full episode. Yes, it does. And before we get there, we want to talk to you about how you can support the podcast and the experiments we do. First of all, you can go to our website, experimentalbrew.com, and you can click on the American Homebrewers Association link to join the American Homebrewers Association and get yourself a subscription to Zymergy Magazine. Or you can click the Brew Your Own Magazine link to get a subscription to Brew Your Own. When you do either one of those, the part of the uh, proceeds come back to us to help us fund the podcast, our travels, our interviews, and all that other stuff we do. And then, of course, there's our charity. If you click on the Patreon link at experimentalbrew.com, you can donate whatever amount of money that you want to our charity. And our charity these days is the Children's Tumor Foundation, which supports research into the causes and treatment of pediatric neurofibromatosis. A great, great cause. So uh, help us help them. Go to experimentalbrew.com, click on the Patreon link, and uh, toss us a little bit of money that we can toss to them. And don't forget, yes? leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcast. Uh, and if you work with one of our sponsors, make sure that you told them that you heard about them through us. It helps. That's right. We really appreciate all of our uh, sponsors helping us get this podcast out there to you. So uh, when you uh, when you use something that one of them makes or sells, please let them know that uh, you're a listener of the Experimental Brewing Podcast. So I think you have some uh, listener mail today, huh? Yeah, it's kind of cool. So we got a lot of really great uh, responses to the various things that we've been talking about in the last couple of episodes. Uh, seems naturally whenever we do one of these Q&A shows, uh, we get a lot of people going, but but wait. Uh, so we heard from a couple of folks on the venting uh, topic that we did uh, for, to refresh your memory. This is where I talked about how I vent my kegs and keep them stored. 
uh, where I actually fill the kegs completely with sanitizer and push the sanitizer out with CO2. And I trust that a lot more than I trust the sort of classic homebrew way of uh, purge and fill that a lot of people do with CO2. So one of the emails that we got, for instance, was from a professional brewer, uh, Sean Palmatier, uh, and he actually uh, wrote and he said, uh, Hi guys, Drew mentioned in the last episode that he doesn't believe in the efficacy of pressurized and vent method for purging oxygen from kegs. This method can actually be a very effective way of purging out oxygen. I recently got a DO analyzer, dissolved oxygen, at work and found that a series of pressurized and vent steps is a quick and effective way to remove oxygen from the bright tanks. That being said, I do think that Drew's purging method is the best method for smaller vessels like kegs. It's not just as practical on a larger scale, which would probably require that we have 40 barrels of very hot water on hand to purge a bright. Regards, Sean. So I actually followed up with Sean and I asked him uh, if he could walk through the process for us of how he does it and what sort of levels that he's seeing. He says, so I'm still working on finding the best practice for purging bright tanks, but we're shooting for O2 levels below 40 parts per billion in the bright prior to transfer. It's difficult to track the change in DO in the beer because it can take a while for the beer slash headspace interface to equilibrate and oxygen reacts pretty quickly. Anyway, the best method that I've found so far is to pressurize a slash vent until under 200 parts per billion, then send CO2 into the drain arm at 10 PSI while venting through the CIP arm decreasing the pressure over time. I've used this method to run down to the single digits by my DO meter, but it can take a lot of time and CO2. And he also says uh, tank geometry really seems to affect this process. We have two 40-barrel bright tanks, one taller and one wider. The wider bright is much more difficult to purge. So, hmm. thank you, Sean, for your feedback, and for others as well who said that they use my methodology as well. Uh, here's the thing, is you can tell from the method that Sean is putting out there yeah, doing purge for 40 barrels would be absolutely ridiculous. But he's got a DO meter that he's running and he's doing analysis and is having to discover technique that works for particular vessels in order to actually get down to that target level. That's kind of a giant pain in the butt. Filling your kegs and purging them with CO2, a hell of a lot easier. So Yeah, that's right. It, it, it will work and I think we'd still need to do an experiment, but I think... With the level of equipment that we have, I don't think everybody's going to go out and buy a DO meter. Uh, with the amount of equipment that we have, filling and purging to me is the safest and surest way to get there. You know, and I, remember I said that I had a couple batches I was going to keg and I was going to try one your way and one my way. Yes. It's been, what, about a month now since I did that? Mm -hmm. Maybe not quite. At this point, I can tell no difference taste-wise in the two beers. I you know, so there's there's a small single data point. There you go. But uh, did you triangle test? Them? Uh, no, I didn't actually. <laughs> I did not. I did not do that. That's why I said it's a small single data point. And uh, you know, and I do have uh, access to a do meter at a brewery where I do some stuff. So uh, I, I, pro I, if I can get myself motivated, I'm going to take a sample of each in there and measure them also. Well, I mean, how much more motivation do you need than to prove me wrong? Well, that, that is good motivation, but on the other hand, I have a podcast to edit. That's true. All right. Edit the podcast. <laughs> All right. Okay. All right. So our next feedback is actually really for Denny. Uh, it comes off of uh, a response from uh, Denny in the last podcast and his take on nugget hops. And this comes from Eric Pierce who writes, Hi, really enjoyed the last episode of the podcast. I was, however, taken aback by your comments about Nugget Hops. 
They grow really well in my backyard, and recently I made a fresh hop batch along with some centennials that I also grow. They make some mighty tasty beer. I've done all nugget beers. I really love the earthy herbal flavors that I get from them. I find that the beer I've made from these hops a refreshing old-school departure from the current tutti-frutti hops that everyone, myself included, is crazy about these days. I'm curious what it was that you hated about these hops. Soil and local environs have done a lot to do with hop characteristics, or have a lot to do with hop characteristics. My backyard is somewhat swampy, the soil is super rich, and I give them lots of composted chicken manure, and yet they always come out lower in alpha than what I get from a store. I haven't done any lab testing or anything, but my nugget hops have come out something like 50% less alpha acid than what you'd buy in the store. A more desirable aromatic characteristic from what is traditional for nuggets. It's practically a different plant altogether. I've got a half a mind to send you my beer and a bag of nuggets, I've got plenty, for you to stick it in your nose and just to see if you think it's different from what you grew. My real point of curiosity is how these plants vary when you take them out of a well-controlled hop yard and then change their environmental conditions, not to mention to stand up for the star of my hop yard. Thanks again for a great podcast. Later, Eric Pierce. Okay. So uh, if if you remember, this was uh, a beer, a recipe that I came up with in a dream uh, about nugget hops. Uh, yeah, for which Drew has chided me mercilessly. Um, Eric, I can tell you that the exact thing that you like about nugget hops is what I didn't like, the earthy herbal quality. Uh, same reason I'm not a Fuggles lover. As a matter of fact, as I've said before, I'm a Fuggles hater. But you know what? Um, just because I like or dislike something doesn't really have any bearing on whether or not you like it or dislike it. I'm really happy that you like your nugget hops that you're growing so well. Um, yes, terroir does have something to do with it. Uh, I have very, very good soil here. It's not uh, swampy or anything. When I planted them, I didn't enrich the soil or anything. I mean, they, they grew well. It took me five or six years to kill them off, you know? So that's a testament to how well they grew. Uh, I'm a little curious about your seemingly certain statement that they have 50% less alpha than uh, commercial nuggets, even though you haven't had them tested. But, you know, whatever, that's that's your perception. Um, you know, I, I it is just not a hot variety I care for, but... Uh, I don't know anybody who likes every hop variety. I don't know anybody who likes every beer. I don't know anybody who likes every food out there. So personal tastes count for a lot, and that was mine. And I'm really happy to hear that your nuggets are growing well and you're brewing some beers you love with them. And ladies and gentlemen, please make sure that you send all of your nugget beers and Fuggles beers and all your Fuggle and Nugget hops to Denny Khan, care of General Delivery, No Tie, Oregon. Yeah, right. I mean, you know, go ahead. I'm I'm willing to check out anything, but uh, I, that's that has been my my reaction so far. Yeah, and and truthfully, like for me, I'm not a fan of Cluster, and I'm not a fan really so much of Northern Brewer. So it's something about those two particular hops for me just don't work. And actually, I'll also be truthful. I don't like a lot of the European hops that we get here in the U.S. because I think a lot of the European hops that we get, or at least that we used to get when I first started brewing, were of uh, lesser quality. Right, right, exactly. 
So uh, is that it for feedback? We got anything else today? Nope, that's it for feedback today. But if you want to send in your feedback, just email us at podcast at experimentalbrew.com and we'll make sure to get you into the show. Uh, you can also reach out to us on Facebook or any of the other channels that you can find us on. And uh, yeah, just uh, tell us what you think. We do listen to your feedback. We do like to have the interaction with our, uh, with our listeners. So please get us feedback. That's right. Okay, we're going to take a quick break here, and when we come back, we'll be sitting in the pub having a couple beers and uh, talking about the beer life. We'll be right back. Never wait for fruit to be in season again. With Vintner's Harvest fruit purees and wine bases, you can enjoy consistent quality fruit which was picked at the peak of ripeness. F.H. Steinbart Company, the nation's oldest homebrew store, recommends grapefruit or tart cherry purees for your next sour or wild beer. So make sure to ask for them at your local homebrew supply store where Brewcraft USA products are sold. And remember, not all fruit purees are equal. If it's not in the Vintner's Harvest can, it's not the same. sitting here in the pub having a couple beers and getting ready to talk about the beer life and what we're up to uh what are you drinking today drew i am drinking one of my favorite beers we're going to talk about it a little bit more in just a bit but uh yeah i'm having myself a nice chalice of uh, rochefort ah i love that beer although i usually go for the uh the six or eight same flavor just a bit less alcohol but man one of my one of my all-time favorites I am sitting here today having a glass of A Touch of Brett from Aleson Brewing and Blending here in Eugene, Oregon, a gold medal winning GABF beer. Uh, it, is, it is a remarkable beer and absolutely delicious, and uh, I feel sorry for all of those of you who can't get your hands on this beer. Well, I feel sorry for the fact that w- that was supposed to be my bottle. <laughs> But at least we had a chance to try one when we were in Portland, right? That's true. Yeah, for those of you who don't know, Denny, uh, Denny was going to bring me some Ale Song beer to try, and he even made it out to the brewery and then promptly forgot them when he came up to Portland to pick me up. Yeah, I, I swear it was an accident. Yeah, a nice beneficial accident for you. <laughs> well, yeah, it is. It is indeed. Well, fortunately, it wasn't like we didn't have enough beer. So Yeah, that's that's true. That's true. Uh, and, and unfortunately, I was the driver when we were in Portland, so I had less beer than everybody else. <laughs> yeah, oh well. That's, that's because I'm such a good guy. So uh, there's some big news in the homebrew world going on right now, huh? Yeah, so this is the one about ABI, uh, our our good friends at Anheuser-Busch InBev, and their latest acquisition, the one that set the homebrewing world ablaze with cries of, huh? Because it turns out, so I had never realized this, but Anheuser-Busch has their own venture capital firm, or uh, whatever you want to call it, Uh, but it's... Uh, ZX Ventures and it's their disruptive growth uh, fund and they went and bought the number one homebrew retailer in the country aka Northern Brewer slash Midwest and it started as a rumor started as a rumor I think about three weeks ago now and when I first started to see it it was like 
what? No, that makes no sense. Why the hell would Anheuser-Busch buy a homebrew shop, even one as big as Northern Brewer? And we started digging around, digging around, digging around, got some back-of-house sort of confirmation. And then finally, the rumor was alive enough on the internet that Northern Brewer finally had to respond and stop keeping it a secret. So what do you think, Denny? I'm, I'm mystified, you know? I cannot understand why they would be interested in a homebrew I have heard one, one pretty good explanation or guess, and I've heard a lot of uh, tinfoil hat theories, you know, like, oh, they're going to control all the ingredients so homebrewers won't be able to brew and they'll have to buy Anheuser-Busch beer and, <laughs> you know, stuff like that. And uh, I assure you people, there aren't enough homebrewers out there for Anheuser-Busch to care about in that regard. The most logical guess that I've heard is that it's a way for them to do market research into, you know, maybe like upcoming trends and a way to get out ahead of those trends a little bit. Uh, you know, I, I, can, I can see that. Um, you know, and I, I'm, not, I'm not claiming any direct connection here, but I can tell you that uh, after my rye IPA recipe got real popular among homebrewers, Suddenly, I saw Anheuser-Busch come out with a rye IPA maybe 18 years ago, 15 years ago. Uh, I've seen them come out with something very similar to my bourbon vanilla porter recipe after it got extremely popular. Now, you know, and I'm, it's entirely possible that these are all just coincidences. I'm not saying that I had an influence on Anheuser-Busch, but... You know, there were a lot of homebrewers who started brewing these kinds of beers, and suddenly Anheuser-Busch was trying it, too. Now, as far as I know, both of those have disappeared in the meantime. Uh, so, so, obviously, maybe uh, they didn't do so well for them. But the, the market research angle is the only thing that makes any sense to me. I mean, have you got a guess? No, I mean, it's, it's the only one that makes a lot of sense to me, but I will tell you what my worry is. My worry is that because Anheuser-Busch has, you know, effectively a crap ton of money, and this is chicken feed to them, this business, uh, that they could really do some damage to the retailer market. You know, we've already talked uh, some of the data that's coming out this year showing sort of a flattening and a downward trend uh, amongst the retail shops. And the retail shops were already freaked out about people appearing on Amazon or Amazon possibly opening up a homebrew store which has been rumored. Uh, and so people were already freaked out about that because your, your local homebrew shop that's owned by, you know, Ma and Pa Joe, they can't compete with Northern Brewer to begin with, you know, on a lot of this stuff. Now we're talking about Northern Brewer slash Midwest fueled by VC money from Anheuser-Busch and possible access to, you know, sort of better bulk deals on, on ingredients. Uh, that spells... A real ability well, to undercut well, the market. Well, where are that? Where uh, are the better bulk uh, deals going to come from? I, I'm not sure how that figures in there. Because Anheuser Busch, yeah, I mean, it's the pockets. I mean, they can uh, they could totally they, they could totally rewrite contracts to you know siphon off part of the you know part of their grain buys to to Northern Brewer. It may not be on every malt that they do, but they certainly yeah, but they a grow lot a lot of malt too. But, I mean, Anheuser Busch grows malt and grows hops. Yeah. Uh, I don't. Yeah. 
but I'm, they, I'm they, sure still they, buy, I, they still buy. They still buy. I don't have really have any They're idea, not. like uh, you know, how much they buy commercially. I mean, admit, admit. Yeah, I mean, trust trust me. Their their farms in Idaho, uh, Idaho and Montana, whatnot. Uh, yeah, are well, not I'm, and I'm oh, I'm sure them. of that. Yeah. and you know, I I just can't. I guess I just can't see it being a real money making deal for them to do that. Well. No, I I, I, um, I can't either. But the, this is the reason why the whole damn thing baffles me. Uh, the other the other real possibility and the other worry is, uh, what if Anheuser Busch decides that they want to start opening uh, Northern Brewer slash Midwest retail locations uh, in more places than they already have? You know, I mean, right now Northern Brewer Midwest is confined to Wisconsin and the Minneapolis St. Paul area, but there's absolutely no reason that they couldn't expand to Chicago. Or L.A. Yeah. or anywhere else, and if they have the if they have the ability to do that with money that they have, yeah, I mean, I mean yeah, the, no, they no. they certainly I, I, could I, do that. I'm, I, I'm still completely. I guess pleasant. from my point of view, I just don't see it being worth their while. But on the other hand, uh, I'm not a financial genius, hey. and I haven't actually sat down and uh, done any analysis of the situation, so. Well, I mean, to my uh, to my point of view, I can't even begin to fathom what the hell is going on here. I mean, so again, my initial reaction when I saw this rumor floating around on the internet was, right? No, that makes no sense. So, I mean, given that this is already something that has begun to baffle me from the start, uh, at this point in time, I'm kind of willing to go. Uh, I don't know, anything's possible. But I totally get the real the real point is that there are a lot of homebrew retailers out there now who are either freaked out or they're trying to use this, I think very smartly, as an angle to draw customers back in. I forget who did it. No, it wasn't Adventures in Homebrewing. Uh, somebody else uh, put out an ad for a brand new kit that they had uh, for uh, Bud Light clone and it included uh, one ounce of, or like a couple of drops of hardworking American spirit and now with Northern Brewer hop pellets. <laughs> yeah, right. Okay, so I guess I guess for right now we'll just leave it like that and keep an eye on it. Uh, it's happened. Uh, we don't know what the strategy is. Uh, where there are semi-sane guesses and there are semi-crazy guesses, but they're all guesses right now. So, uh, well, and I would say to the listeners, if you have feedback, like what you think might be going on here, why, uh, why the hell would this deal go through? Uh, let us know if you have uh, thoughts. You know, are you still going to buy supplies from uh, Anheuser Busch, InBev, uh, Northern Brewer, Midwest Supplies, uh, et cetera, et cetera? Now, I will again state: remember when we talk about this stuff, Denny and I are both of the point of view of, "Hey, great, you went and you got your money." Now, remember, Northern Brewer, the original owners who founded Northern Brewer, already got their money a couple of years ago when they sold Northern Brewer to a private equity firm. So now the private equity firm is the one that's been making the money from this deal with ABI. So this is already once removed from somebody's hard work getting a, a thing attractive enough to buy. But let us know, are you still going to buy uh, buy supplies from Midwest slash Northern Brewer? And what crazy conspiracy theories or sound rational theories can you come up with for this purchase? And let us know and at podcast.experimentalbrew.com. if you're uh, lucky enough to have a uh, local homebrew shop like Drew and I are, make sure you support them because uh, they're there for you. You need to be there for them. So, uh, Indeed. what else is going on, right. man, now that we've raved about that? Yeah. 
Well, I just thought I'd uh, tell people, I'm hoping that we get Steve on here before too long. But uh, I actually just got a chance to uh, serve as a CaskMark evaluator. Uh, what is CaskMark, you ask? Uh, CaskMark is a program that started in the UK, and it is all about evaluating pubs and brewery breweries for their cask beer service. All right, real ale service, uh, how well they do it, do they do it properly, uh, and CaskMark has guidelines. And they send in independent evaluators uh, who are chosen by CaskMark to go evaluate the beers and you show up and you do a taste test and you measure out various things and the brewery basically gives you the beer for free and you do your thing. Uh, and they have to pass so many times before they can actually get a seal of approval. And so here in LA, we currently have one brewery that is a Cascale brewery, McLeod's Brewing Company, or McLeod's Ale Company. And they applied for Castmark status and they're one of the first uh, places in the US to do it. I worked with Steve Homburg out of Chicago uh, who is a longtime home brewer, uh, and he uh, is also the U.S. representative for Caskmark. Uh, he's very passionate about real ale, and so I worked with him, and I did their evaluation. And so, just really kind of cool. We have the one brewery now, and we have another one coming up in the next couple months that will also be a real ale focused brewery. And this, by the way, is a trend. I really hope that we get to see more of. And it was, it was fun. I basically walked into the brewery and said, Hi, I'm here to do your cask mark evaluation. And they poured me six half pints of their beers that they had on cask. And I went through and took photos, took notes, took temperatures, uh, wrote down a whole evaluation, made sure that everything was in spec. And now that's all been submitted off to the motherland of the UK. And hopefully uh, McLeod's will get their cask mark rating uh, here shortly. So just a very cool program. Read some more, watch for it to spread here in the U.S., and hopefully by having this sort of thing, we can actually get uh, American beer drinkers to appreciate real ale and look for that seal of approval. Uh, that's great Great to hear that that's yeah. going on. Okay, so, uh, and you're going to tell us a little bit about some bargain beers you've been finding? Yeah, uh, this is just a real quick thing that I wanted to tell people. If you watch my Facebook feed at all, you'll have seen that I found a hell of a deal uh, the other day. And the reason why I'm sitting here drinking a Rochefort 10 while we're sitting here in the pub is because my local grocery store, which I don't normally buy a lot of beer from because I found beers way out of code there, you know, like IPAs that are a year and a half old. Uh, thank you, Bottle Dates. Uh, and so normally I don't trust a lot of the beer to buy there, and I'll go buy from an actual retailer who's beer savvy I trust. But they also have a discount area, right? You know, like a couple of those racks hidden off in a corner where it's like, Oh, here, buy the damaged merchandise or things that we're getting rid of. Well, I wandered in. I always check it because, uh, well, I'm a cheapskate. And on the shelves were 14 bottles of Rochefort 10 for half off. They were $4 a piece. So did you buy them all? So damn straight. <laughs> yes, I did. I, 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 but I, I will actually be truthful. I bought 10. I came home. And I left the other four there just to be a good soul. And then I went back to the grocery store later that night because it's right across the street from me. Went back to the grocery so much store for good soul. and bought the last four. They're still... Yeah, well, hey, they had uh, they had about 12 hours. Uh, there's a couple uh, Rochefort 8 sitting on the shelf still. So they're there. But uh, still, keep an eye out for this sort of thing because really, I, I wouldn't trust a lot of discount beers. But for something like a Rochefort 10, a beer that's designed to basically stick around for ever... Uh, that is a wonderful thing to see. And sometimes you can find real deals. 
I was telling Denny about uh, while we were saying the hair dog, the hair of the dog pub in Portland, that there was one time when Trader Joe's was getting rid of their hair of the dog line, and they started selling off magnums of hair of the dog for like twelve bucks, and every couple of weeks the sale deal, the deal changed, and sale prices went lower and lower until finally towards the end I was picking up magnums of Adam and Fred for two bucks. Oh, a I wish I had been there. For a liter and a half bottle. A liter and a half of hair of the dog for two bucks. Uh, so, yeah, keep an eye out. These are epic deals that you can sometimes find if you're just paying attention. Yep, that's right. So, uh, uh, go bargain shopping at your local beer store. Uh, take a look at the date codes on the bottle uh, just to maybe protect yourself a bit. But you know what? Uh, even if I saw a two-year-old bottle mishandled of Rochefort 10 for four bucks, I'd buy it anyway. Hell yeah. <laughs> All right, it's time to uh, head over to the brewery, and we're going to be chilling with Jaded Brewing. We'll be right back. the brewery surrounded by bright and shiny equipment and uh, we're going to talk specifically about some bright and shiny equipment which are some chillers made by jaded brewing you want to you want to start off on this one with your impressions yeah well uh so jaded for those of you who've never seen them they, they make these copper chillers that really honestly look like works of art uh so we met uh, uh, clay and jeremy from jaded uh, at NHC or slash homebrew con. And we had them on the podcast. And so you can hear us talking to them back then. And of course, Denny and I were talking as like, Oh, look, these are pretty and shiny. And wow. You know, I was thinking I need to replace my, my counterflow chiller that I've been using for the past too many years. Uh, and <laughs> next thing you know, in the mail, Denny and I both got, uh, well, we got their Hydra, which is their largest, uh, immersion, uh, chiller. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we also got their brand new product that they have, the Corny Pillar, uh, which they advertise as basically being a immersion chiller designed to go into a corny keg of hot beer, like if you're using a small countertop brewing system that uses a keg as an offset vessel. Um, and so I got a chance to use them. I remember I'm here in LA, which means that my groundwater temperatures are usually during the summer, somewhere in the 80s. Uh, Denny does not have that problem. No, no, no. And so I, I for years have always used a counterflow rig uh, with the wort flowing out of the kettle into the counterflow chiller. Uh, that will usually get it down to about 80 degrees. And then I flow the wort into an immersion uh, coil that I have, just a really small one that would sit in an ice bath. And the wort would come out the other side in the 60s, which is awesome and exactly what I need. Uh, so I did a test batch and I did it with the Hydra. And... I think I'm trying to remember. I did 15 gallons of Saison wort because Saison. And I like to get that down really cold. And so I did that and they included with the kit, they sent me a a submersible pump. And basically I drove it down uh, via just my tap water until it got down into the eighties. And that took like 12 minutes for a 15 gallon batch. 
And once I got it down there, I pumped it, uh, pumped ice water in through the coil and dropped it down to the 60s in about another, you know, five minutes. And it was awesome and super <laughs> easy to use. And you got you got to see how they've set this thing up because it's really cool. Uh, the one immersion coil, we normally think of immersion coils as just being like one big loop of copper, right? Kind of stacked right. on top of each other. What's really nifty about the Hydra is that they actually split the hose output into three different individual circulating loops. And they're stacked on top of each other. So you get cold water going in at three different levels of the brew kettle, which helps yeah. with striation. And this this is a good time to mention that uh, Clay and Jeremy are engineers, and they have put hundreds of hours of testing and dozens, if not hundreds of tests of uh, different chiller designs in, into this thing. Uh, and if you look at their website, uh, jadedbrewing.com, you'll see that they have lots of different uh, chiller designs, some of them things that I have never even imagined before. And these guys, I mean, they're so amazing and, and so technically into this that before they'll sell you a chiller, they'll ask you about what kind of setup you're using it in to make sure you get the right one. They have mm -hmm. determined that using the shortest possible hoses is uh, very important for getting the best chilling performance. So they even send you the input and output hoses that you need for their chillers. Uh, my experience with the Hydra, uh, it was when a, uh, I've used it in the five and a half gallon batches, which is my normal batch size. My groundwater temperature was about 52 degrees and I went from boiling to 58 in just about six minutes with, uh, with my Hydra. When I used the corny pillar on a two and a half gallon batch for my Zymatic, I swear to God, it chilled that in three minutes. It was astounding. I could not believe it. And, yeah, that, that corny that corny pillar is pretty is pretty awesome. Yeah, and I mean, the normal method for me with my zymatic, when I would take the keg of wort, show it into my uh, chest freezer overnight, and pitch it the next day. Uh, when I can get it chilled in three minutes with that corny pillar, that is far preferable because it's just done. Uh, the other thing I wanted to point out is that their customer service is so great. Uh, I was on a, uh, the Grainfather users group on Facebook talking about the, my, uh, my experience with the Grainfather, uh, which we'll talk about in an upcoming show. Um, and several people had mentioned that with their water temperature, the uh, counterflow chiller that comes with the Grainfather was not real effective. Well, uh, I was asked if my uh, Hydra would work with the uh, with the grandfather. I went out there and tried it. It was maybe you know like half an inch too big to fit into the grandfather kettle. Uh, suddenly, what should show up a few days later on my doorstep? But a Hydra specifically designed to be used with the grandfather. These guys had uh, noticed my comment online and built one especially for me to test and try. Uh, unfortunately, I've been so busy traveling, I haven't had a chance to use the Grainfather, but I have grain crushed. Uh, hopefully, by the end of the week, I can give it a try, and uh, I'll be able to report to you on how well the uh, the Grainfather version of the Hydra worked. Although, based on my other experience, uh, I have no doubt that it's going to be as amazing as the other stuff. Uh, bottom line is that... 
these things work. They were designed to replace a counterflow chiller, uh, chill just about as fast, but with uh, less hassle in terms of cleaning and sanitizing. And boy, I I just love these things. And the guys are great. The the customer service is great. They care about homebrewers, and they will take good care of you. There's just no doubt in my mind about that. Yeah, and it's really cool because, I mean, obviously, Denny and I both have the Hydras because that's kind of their big badass one that we have to use because of our system sizes, or at least I do. But uh, they have, like, I think half a dozen different immersion chillers. Yeah, right. And they have all size for different applications. And they also have a couple of uh, counterflow chillers made out of copper that are actually designed to pull apart so you can actually get a brush down inside them and clean them entirely. And so really slick. Yeah. And then again, that is just an example of uh, both their design smarts and their commitment to homebrewers getting the best possible product they can get. Yeah. So uh, definitely if you're in the, in the market for a brand new chiller, uh, like I kind of was because I was going, eh, well, you know, this thing's old now. Uh, I'm a little sketchy about using a counterflow chiller after uh, well, since 1999, um, yeah. If if you're in a market for a, a new chiller, whether it's counterflow or immersion, Denny and I definitely give uh, Jaded Brewing a big old thumbs up. Expect to see real soon. I'm doing a test uh, where I'm going to show the differences between my method of chilling water that I always used to use or chilling the wort versus doing it with a hydra. Uh, the guys also actually sent me a really cool. Uh, immersion coil arm that they have for doing whirlpools. So I'm going to use that as well. Right. I've been using that man and that cut another minute or two off of my chilling <laughs> and which, which doesn't sound like much until you stop to think that, you know, you're starting like at six or seven minutes. I, I'm just blown away. Yeah. So definitely by all means, if you're in the market, check them out. They aren't the cheapest option on the market. Uh, I mean, I think, but still, when you look at the sheer amount of copper, that's in something like the Hydra. The fact that the Hydra is like 160 bucks is astonishing. Yeah, and that's that's not an outrageous price by any means. Remember, these are hand-built by these guys. And it's like you get what you pay for, and it is good stuff. So like Drew said, if you're in the market for a chiller, please take a look at the stuff from jadedbrewing.com. We don't think you'll be disappointed because we certainly weren't. Indeed. Okay. Well, we're going to uh, wander on over to the library now and talk about some silly stuff and some not-so-silly stuff. And we'll be back in a minute. sitting here in the library we're surrounded by books there's a crackling fire in the fireplace even though it's 112 degrees in pasadena today and uh, drew is going to talk to you about some stuff that he's found online yeah you're not too far off from the temperature it was 92 yesterday oh, all right uh the other day on my facebook feed jesse ingham and by the way if you ever want to get my attention facebook tagging me is one way to do it although i warn you i have a lot of activity on my facebook feed uh but jesse ingham sent uh, a link uh, to mcsweeney's.net. And if you don't know McSweeney's, you're really kind of missing out on something. McSweeney's is a great sort uh, of satirical uh, writing site. Uh, a lot of humor. Uh, they 
It's called uh, Timothy McSweeney's Early Video Art Involved in a, a Lot of Crying in Bathrooms. It's all sorts of random titles. But the uh, article that got sent to me was from Darren Hoyt. 20 ways to talk to me about your homebrewing hobby. And the 20 ways include briefly, faintly, infrequently, nutshelled, etc., etc. It just goes on from there. Uh, and with, of course, uh, 20 being the kicker of how most people want us to talk to them about their uh, about our homebrewing hobby. But fortunately for you and I, you have us, we have you, and we can sit here and talk about homebrewing all you know, damn day. You know what? My favorite one is from inside Earth's inner core. There you go. Well, I, and I like the express through uh, Bonjour. I was going to say, man, that that was a close second. Express through Bangra. I mean, I'm a big Bangra fan anyway. So there you go. Uh, yeah, so I, uh, you know, and I would say that uh, if I was to show this to my wife, she would agree. She's a wonderful person. She's supported me in my home brewing. She got me started in my home brewing. She's heard enough about it. She could probably brew a batch of beer on her own if she wanted to, but she really doesn't want to hear about it. Well, and and this is not McSweeney's first time delving into home brewing as well, because they had another one, uh, like two years ago that was called Homebrewed Beers. Bro- uh, sorry. Homebrewed beers customers have brought into my shop, renamed by actual taste and appearance. So, <laughs> we'll we'll cover that one another day because I bet you there's some material there. Yes. Uh, so uh, that's uh, that's the first one. Now, on the more serious side of the fence, uh, discovered a, a podcast that's recently started to appear, uh, the Master Brewers Podcast. That actually comes from the Master Brewers Association of Americas. Uh, it says basically uh, every Monday, and they've started, they're on episode seven now. So seven weeks ago, if they've been keeping their timeline, they have a podcast that is a nice short hit type podcast with various Master Brewer members talking about uh, different techniques. So as I'm looking uh, right now, uh, there's one here on staining yeast cells for automated counting, uh, innovation, dry hopping, and its effects on bitterness and the IBU test, which is a very, very good one from the folks at SS Steiner. Uh, so, uh, oh yeah. How beer color influences, uh, perceived hop bitterness. So there's a lot of really good information that I suspect we're going to be able to see coming out of this podcast. Definitely. Uh, I recommend that you guys uh, give it a, a hit. And we'll pu- put a link on our website so that, uh, we'll help you find that. So if you go to experimentalbrew.com, you can look for the link to the MBAA podcast. Okay. So I guess maybe it's time to, uh, Head over to the lab and talk about the results from our New England IPA experiment, huh? There you go. All righty. We're going to take a quick break, play some music, and when we come back, we'll be talking about yeast for a New England-style IPA. It's just about time. It's just about time. Don't you think it's about time? We talked about beer. Okay, this is the part where everybody sings. Beer, 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 beer. Beer, 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 beer. Beer, 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 beer. Well, we're out here in the brewery, and we are going to be talking about uh, our New England IPA experiment that ran a while back, where we were looking at uh, different choices for yeast in a New England IPA. Uh, you want to like run down what we did? Sure. And uh, first off, a great shout out to Igor Birdman, who was the one who proposed this particular experiment. Uh, and the question was, does a yeast choice generate the haze in a New England style IPA? 
Uh, and we said, yes, there will be a noticeable visual difference with the beers fermented with the different yeast strains. In this particular case, we used uh, Y-Yeast 1056 and Y-Yeast 1318, the London 3, which is a very popular strain amongst people making New England IPAs. Uh, and just for the fun of it, we had people make my Israel Bissell New England IPA, which is a kind of uh, it's based on a couple of different uh, New England IPAs that we've seen out there, uh, particularly Ed Coffey's Hop Hands clone and uh, Jason Foiler's New England IPA. They sent for, sent to us for uh, tasting, and it's named after my ancestor, and that's why we brewed it. But it's basically pale malt, Munich malt, and oats with a whole bunch of Warrior cent- uh, Centennial Citra and Emerald Gold in lots of different pieces. Uh, and a little bit of calcium chloride to adjust, uh, having people adjust to a one-to-one ratio on chloride to sulfate. We'll get into that more. So uh, we had people brew up two batches of, or sorry, one batch of the New England IPA and pitch one with 1056 and one with 1318 and ferment them exactly the same, bottle them exactly the same, and then do a triangle test exactly the same, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And there so, was one little exception to that. Uh, yep. Jesse Pringle used his Zymatic to uh, brew two separate batches, and uh, we consider that acceptable because the Zymatic makes things so repeatable. And while I mentioned in Jesse, I just want to say hi. I met Jesse at uh, Hop and Brew School up in Yakima. Uh, it was a great time, great guy, and uh, we'll be talking about that more one of these days. Yep. All right, so we had five results reported back to us. Uh, from five different Igors with a total of 80 testers amongst everybody. And of the five uh, Igors that we had, uh, remember we pass all of our values through a uh, binomial distribution to generate the p-value and to figure out, okay, are we good or are we bad? Uh, Or, sorry, are we significant or are we not significant? And this was interesting because as our results usually are, we saw a split of differences here, and this is the reason why we like to do repeated tests. Uh, three of the five Igors actually reported back results that were showing p-values above 0.05, which means that they were not significant. So uh, Jesse Pringle, Chris Nelson, and James Bird, who proposed the experiment, uh, all did their uh, tastings, and they all came out with p-values above 0.5. So like Jesse Pringle had uh, 22 tasters, 10 of which could successfully identify the different beer. Uh, Chris Nelson uh, was probably closest. He had 11 tasters and five of them could. And James Bird had six and only had two of them, which is actually less than random chance. Uh, but two of uh, but two of our other Igors had bigger tasting pools and they did have success. Uh, Randy Peterman, uh, a.k.a. Mr. Pants, he tasted, he had uh, 16 tasters, 10 of which successfully tasted the beer. Uh, that was different. And then uh, Jeremy Wickham actually ran three tasting sessions. Awesome. And he had a total of 25 tasters. And of those 25 tasters, 20 got it correct. Uh, They could successfully identify. So looking at uh, sort of the aggregate values, and of course, we know that there are people out there who like and don't like the aggregate things. Uh, Statisticians, if you're out there, uh, please help us formulate a new way to do this. We don't (laughs) mind. Uh, Denny and I are both statistical idiots. Uh, And But basically, in the aggregate results out of 80 testers, in order for us to actually show something that was indicative of a different in res- difference in response, we had to have 35 of them actually correctly identify the beer. So aggregating all the results together, again, we know, uh, out of the 80, we had 47 correctly identify the beer, which would then mean that we actually successfully 
crossed over and showed significance. The uh, total actual uh, calculated p-value actually floored, uh, floored in at a zero. Uh, now, part of that is because of Jeremy's uh, tasting results. Uh, Jeremy having 20 out of 25 tasters successfully taste the beer really swings the, 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 sh- the numbers around. Now, if we were to remove Jeremy from the list and his 25 tasters, that would give us a total of 55 tasters, of which uh, 27 correctly identified the beer. Uh, in order to show significance out of that 55 taster pool, we would actually have needed 25 to show. So we actually still, even removing Jeremy's very, very heavily positive results from the list, we still see significance. So you want to walk through some of the results that people saw? Well, yeah, I I do. Um, I mean, you know, the the successful tasters said things like... Uh, they thought that the 1318 had a duller aroma, but a hotter alcohol taste. Uh, um, 1056 had a stronger, sweeter aroma. Uh, some people thought it was different hops. Uh, uh, three of the five people who got it wrong second-guessed themselves and talked themselves into picking the wrong sample. Oh, boy, that's... Uh, Always difficult. Mm-hmm. What I'm what I'm not seeing is anybody mentioning any difference in clarity, which I've seen people notice in terms of uh, thirteen eighteen versus ten fifty six. Everyone is talking about it uh, pretty much in terms of flavor. Uh, and to tell you the truth, that more or less drives uh, with my experience with thirteen eighteen. I've heard people well, saying it leaves the beer hazy, like. Uh, is normal for a New England style IPA, and mm-hmm. I have not used thirteen eighteen a lot. But when I have, I've never noticed it being any hazier than anything else. Well, um, I, I will say that if we look at uh, one of our unsuccessful tasters or, or tests, and remember, unsuccessful just meaning that people couldn't tell the difference. Not that mm-hmm. the test was unsuccessful. Uh, from James Bird, the man who proposed the experiment, uh, he actually said that he did two versions of the test where he had it done in opaque glasses. And then he did it in clear glasses. And he said the second that he moved to clear glasses, all six of his tasters correctly identified the different beer. Uh, because if you look at his photos, uh, the the thirteen eighteen beer is definitely hazier. Now, to back some of that up with my own anecdata, I just recently brewed my new New England IPA that I call my Gold Coast IPA. And it was basically the, very close to the Israel Bissell IPA, but uh, with pale malt, Golden Naked Oats, and a couple of other small bits in it. And then uh, El Dorado for the gold, uh, for bittering. And then a couple sets of Australian Victoria Secret, or Vic Secret, sorry. Vic Secret and Australian Summer Hops, which are these very intensely oily and fruity hops. And I pitched that with 1318, and I served it. And that bad boy was hazy as hell. And it was beautiful. And it tasted wonderful. So... I do see in the notes that people uh, people are seeing uh, some thirteen eighteen uh, uh, haziness notes, but the the main difference that we that we are seeing that does jive into what people want to see out of a New England IPA, I think, is that the thirteen eighteen came off softer, usually, right, uh, and with a more fruity expression, right. Although you know it was not an overwhelming difference that uh, that we're seeing. But generally, yeah, it, it seems that the thirteen eighteen kind of had a, a dulling effect on the hops. Uh, mm-hmm. 
so that that they weren't just they weren't quite as prominent in, in your face, which is more in line with the third with a uh, what's thought of as a New England style IPA. Well, and can we, we should also talk because uh, James also took it a, uh, a few steps further because obviously I think he was really into this experiment, uh, and he actually went and did cell counts and did centrifuge tests. Um, and he said, uh, doing the cell counts for the Cal Ale, the 1056, uh, sample that he did, he had about, uh, 2,500 sales, cells per milliliter in the finished product, but the 1318 had over 10,000 cells per, per milliliter. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he also went and he did, uh, seven mils into uh, centrifuge and spun it at 4,000 RPMs for 20 minutes. Uh, and he said, could very get very little to actually settle out, but what he did get to settle out was noticeably different in the thirteen eighteen from the the ten fifty six in there. So his his reflection on the experiment said basically uh, that he thinks that there's more than just uh, a difference going on there with the cell counts, uh, and uh, maybe it's a problem with the oats, or maybe it's a thing with the oats. Not a problem because it's intentional in the style, uh, or some uh, some other solid matter that's getting into the equation. Uh, his other reflections, I absolutely love. He says, uh, one, I need to stop drinking the beers until I've collected enough data because <laughs> uh, he ran out of beer. And uh, two, I need to do the write-up sooner so I don't forget everything I haven't recorded. And buddy, don't we all? Yeah, really. So I guess the takeaway is that if you're looking to brew a New England-style IPA, probably 1318 is going to be a better choice than 1056. I don't think anybody's going to be uh, astounded by that. Do you? No, I don't. But I, I did like to at least get that as a foundational thing in there. I, I think one of the there are a couple of future experiments I think that we need to do. Uh, and we'll talk these out. And if you have feedback on them, please give us feedback at podcastexperimentalbrew.com. Uh, but there's obviously the question of oats. Yeah, because a lot of these New England style IPAs have oats in them. So if you did everything the same but didn't include oats, would it be a New England IPA? Uh, there's a question of chloride ratios. You know, how does chloride play into this? Because a lot of the New England IPAs claim to do chloride treatments. Uh, some of them don't. Uh, and then we also have things in there. Uh, we should probably also compare 1318 to an actual Conan strain. Yeah, I think I think that could be a real valuable thing. So, uh, so we'll uh, we'll kick some of these ideas around. Come up with another experiment uh, to help you make uh, better New England style IPAs, if that's what you want to do. And if you have any ideas for experiments uh, along that line, please send them to us at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. All right, we're getting out of the brewery now, and we're going to head over to the lounge and listen to a couple interviews from our trip to Portland last weekend, and we're going to be right back to do that. All right, everybody, we're in the comfy chairs now, because now it's time for all of us to sit back and try and gain some wisdom. Well, okay, maybe wisdom. Or at least, how about we listen to some folks? Uh, just recently, you know, obviously, Denny and I normally do this podcast separated by about a thousand some odd miles, but 
we recently had the opportunity to go to Portland and spend some time there. And uh, Denny, why don't you tell the good people out there, why the heck were we in Portland? Well, our good friends at Brewcraft had this totally whacked out idea. They... <laughs> They, they were, are having a conference for uh, the retailers who buy things through Brewcraft, and that, the conference was not the whacked-out idea. But they were, uh, they were bringing in uh, people who have homebrew shops uh, who buy from Brewcraft to uh, help them learn about the products and how to sell them better. And after these people had spent uh, all day in these uh, intense workshops uh, actually having to think, they decided that they needed some mindless entertainment for the night. And when it comes to mindless entertainment, who do you think of but us? Yeah. So the Brewcraft rented out the Kiggins Theater in downtown Vancouver, Washington. A beautiful old theater from uh, the 1930s that has been recently restored. And they put on an event they were calling Denny and Drew After Dark. Um it was, which is only which is only slightly less scary than the title would imply. Yeah, that's right. Um, we walked in. There were movie style posters with our faces bigger than I ever want to see my face again. Yeah, and we sp- we spent about two and a half hours on stage doing what uh, we call homebrewtainment. We combined uh, some of our seminar material with some. Uh, Real silliness. We did live on stage tastings. They uh, they live streamed the whole thing. So if you were if you were lucky enough to not see it, you'll have another chance to uh, destroy your mind by uh, looking at it because we'll post the links to the live streams. Yeah, and we'll, uh, and we'll probably put it on our YouTube channel as well. Yeah, that's right. But it was a really really fun event. Uh it was uh, a long evening of homebrew silliness and information. So that's any any rate that's why we were in the Portland area. Yeah, and so we started our trip. Denny came and picked me up at the airport because I got to the LA airport at O Dark 30 and made it made it up to Portland and Denny came and picked me up. And uh, you'll hear the two segments that we, or two of the segments that we did that first day in this episode. But we basically called our first interviewee and said, uh, "Hey, so we're here," and he's like, "I need time." Hey, you guys are near Steinbart's, so we went over to Steinbart's. Right, and for those of you not from the Portland area, F.H. Uh, Steinbart Company is, I believe, the oldest homebrew shop in the United States. Uh, great, knowledgeable staff. Uh, crazy amount of uh, stock there and supplies for home brewers. Uh, Drew went crazy going, ooh, ooh, I need that. Ooh, I need that. I need that. And while we were there, uh, we had a chance to uh, chat with Michael Brown, who works there, about uh, a, a recently passed legend of the Portland homebrewing scene, Dean Pottle, who uh, had a rather unique idea for doing things, huh? Uh, Dean basically had my my dream avocation, but uh, the way to think of it is this way: is Dean ran Dean's scene, where he took the basement of his home slash plumbing store, I think, and turned it into sort of an underground speakeasy, and absolutely amazing with lots of beers uh, brewed by Michael and others. And Dean unfortunately had uh, passed suddenly in a kind of a surprise uh, passing, and so. We talked a little bit with Michael about uh, F.H. Steinbart's was, yeah, it was founded in 1918. And right. assuming Denny hasn't edited it out, 
you'll hear me do an audible double take as I'm talking to him <laughs> because 1918, what? Uh, and then, yeah, we get into the sort of serious business, but we also talk about some of the, the fun things that Steinbart's is doing as well. So I think without further ado, we ought to kick it over to uh, F.H. Steinbart's and go uh, go listen to some uh, Michael Brown. All righty, here we go. All right, so I'm standing here in uh, one of the premier homebrew shops, I think, around the nation. Uh, F.H. And Steinbart's. the oldest. And the oldest. Oh, there you go. When was Steinbart's founded? 1918. All right, and I'm talking to uh, Michael Brown, right? Yep. All right, Michael. Uh, and so... Wait, say that again, 19... 1918, yes. Well, you, you know, you, you did one of these things where you start talking and your brain's not paying attention. The next thing you know, you catch up and it's like, what? So, if, if, all right, uh, you have to give us some genesis. How, uh, how, did, how did we get a homebrew shop founded in 1918? Well, Oregon was the first state to pass prohibition. <laughs> and being one of the first states to do that, they uh, had uh, no alcohol that was obtainable at that time, at least not legally. But the ingredients were legal to sell because they were considered food items. And so a lot of people were buying pre-hopped malt extract uh, for baking purposes. Mm -hmm. And they would use that malt extract for baking purposes, except they were not baking bread, they were baking beer. <laughs> I always love. I have an old uh, set of instructions from uh, Pabst Malt mm -hmm. Extract, and yeah, the the best one is like you know if you live in an area that has prohibition, you know, don't add yeast. Yeast generates alcohol. You know, without yeast, you'll have a healthful, snappy, flavorful malt tonic. Indeed, and uh, those blue ribbon uh, recipes I had, they probably was they turned brown because they were the old mimeograph sheets that were wet. And if they weren't treated properly, if you left them out in the light, they would turn this yucky brown color and you could not read them. They were illegible. And so those got lost to me to time. But they came in a plain brown manila envelope with a hand-signed address and no return address. That shows you the way things were back in those days. I've been brewing since 1971. Yeah, I can remember the pre-BATF days. Right. Well, how long have you been here at Steinbart's? Uh, 12 years. 12 years. All right. So it started brewing in 71 and finally decided to take it official 12 years ago. Yeah, well, you know, I got tired of being a doctor. I never played one on TV, but I did one in real life, and uh, it was getting awful boring because it was a, a profession filled with uh, assholes. But then I left one for a profession that was relatively asshole-free. Like I said, pro wait, proctology? Wait, no. <laughs> Actually, I did work in a proctology clinic. <laughs> Naturally, all right. Well, I know, uh, so Denny and I are here in town because we're going to go uh, speak at a uh, uh, Brewcraft USA's retailers uh, convention. And, uh, of course, coming straight out of the airport, you know, we went, well, you know, it's a little too early for beer, so we had to stop by and see. It's never too early for beer. Beer is not just for breakfast anymore. <laughs> That's true. It's your, it's your it's an around the clock drink. It's Absolutely. Also, it's your midnight snack as well. You um, got it. But uh, I know that one of the things that I wanted to talk real quick about was sure. that you know Portland. Yeah, obviously you said you know has a vibrant homebrew community. Been in, uh, very active for a long period of time, and I know that the community just experienced uh, a big loss. And I was hoping that you could uh, tell us about uh, the loss and who we just lost in the community. Well, last Thursday, my dear friend Dean Pottle passed away uh, at the age of 65. It was a rather sudden onset. Uh, I wasn't expected by anybody, and it was very quick. And uh, he died with uh, Sammy Klaus, 1988, on his lips. And yet this is a man that uh, I knew was a great friend, but also uh, a great brewer and a great uh, connoisseur of fine beers. And one of the things that uh, I'm going to miss more about Dean was his eclectic conversations. 
Well, I was going to say, Dean Kairana, for lack of a better way of putting it, kind of a speakeasy. Exactly. In fact, he termed it that, but then he saw the negative connotations associated with speakeasy. And so he was wanted to call it something else, so he called it Dean Scene. And basically the scene was all about people coming together, uh, no electronic games, no TVs, no radios, just, you know, music that he would uh, have piped into his house. And uh, he had quite an eclectic uh, uh, collection of music as well. I mean, he had everything from uh, Aerosmith to Zaza. So all kinds of different, you know, musical groups there. And he tried to encompass a great many different uh, types of uh, music, and so he thought music and beer would go together, and they do indeed. Mm-hmm. And so, and if I remember correctly, the, the stories I've read, I mean, obviously he had some things going on with the OLCC and mm-hmm. donations and all yep, that, but, yep. but I mean, like literally, this was in a basement at his mm-hmm. place. People come in, and he was serving beer that he was making, or a friend of his was making, right? Yeah, well, that was my beer. Oh, that was your beer. Well, there we go. <laughs> So this uh-huh, we go from being a doctor to a speakeasy, uh, speakeasy supplier. Well, what could you say? Life gives you different turns and uh, signals are encouraged. So now we talked a little bit about uh, Santa Claus because um, that's a wonderful beer, but hard to make because it's so big. Uh, what, what did you guys usually have on tap there? Well, Dean was known for his red ale. Uh, he called it Seeing Red, and uh, it was a really nice red ale, uh, more like an amber in my opinion, but Dean wanted to call it a red, so it became a red. And uh, he also uh, was into IPAs, but I tried to get him to encourage himself to get into other beers, and finally I talked him into making a brown ale, so we made a brown ale together, and that brown ale got to be so popular that they actually brewed it across the street at Alameda Brew Pub. Oh, there you go. Well, he pulled out a secret weapon. He had a coconut to it. We didn't do that before together. So okay. he gave it his own twist, and the toasted coconut okay, brown ale was very popular. Okay. See, I, I, I love that sort of transition and that sort of, uh, I mean, doing things outside the system, and, and but still having this impact and kind of... Oh, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So um, I know, like we just said, this. I mean, this was very sudden. This was all last week. Yeah, indeed. Uh, and uh, so... Do you know what the community is planning to do? To well, there's been uh, many events posted and scheduled. Uh, Dean Scene uh, has uh, no website, but he does have a Facebook page, and uh, they're also getting a donation page up to help pay for Dean's final expenses. And uh, there's enough money in the account to pay for the mortgage, but apparently uh, his family uh, has yet to be notified. Uh, we could not find any of his family to contact, and so we're doing all kinds of exploration right now, genealogy records, trying to find his family so that we can let them know what happened. Because I think it's important that we keep in touch with the family on that. But uh, Dean was sort of the black sheep of his family. Wait, wait, uh, somebody deeply into homebrew being a black sheep? That never happens. Well, in some cases, maybe, in some places, maybe not. But <laughs> in case with uh, Dean, uh, we became his family, and uh, he was more like a brother than uh, a friend because uh, Dean and I would get into really intense arguments over things. Mm-hmm. And uh, sometimes he just couldn't see common sense. Other times uh, he just had his own ideas on things and how they should be. And even though we did have arguments, we all agreed to be good friends and drink good beer. There you go. Yeah, I mean, uh, again, to your point earlier, that's part of the thing that's so wonderful about the brewing community. Is mm-hmm. that exactly. It, it is a... With modern life being so sort of fragmented and isolated mm-hmm. and people sort of behind their screens and away from their neighbors, uh, I, 
I've always felt that brewing, one of the great joys about it is it is an enforced social thing. You know, in order to bring it to its full hilt, you are talking with people, you are sharing. It is a yeah, sharing community. Exactly. And the beautiful thing about it is, is that uh, we're producing something that everybody can enjoy. And uh, while we all may agree or disagree on certain things, you know, whether it be politics or whether it be uh, economics or whatever, we all do agree on one thing. Beer is good. Beer is awesome. Indeed. All right. Well, um, so before we, before we wrap this up, just the concluding thoughts here. Uh, what do you think uh, you want people to take away about Dean, and you know how 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 do you feel like people should like honor that sort of spirit? I would say be of good cheer, drink good beer, because tomorrow we may not be here. Perfect. I, I think that needs to be said to Melody. Wait, hold on. <laughs> Oh okay. dear, right. where well, do I start it now? Oh my god, I, I got the ukulele. I was going to say, Dave's got a ukulele somewhere. Quick, everybody run, hide. My idea with the bicycle wreck has gone uh, ballistic too. Uh, apparently it went viral here in Portland because we have quite the problem with the homeless camping out. And so what my suggestion was is why don't we put bicycle racks up so that way you know, they can't camp in those spots. And because Portland's a very bicycle forward town, uh, the city of Portland just thought this is awesome. So they're giving tax rebates for businesses that put up bicycle racks. There you go. All right. Well, uh, before uh, before we leave and uh, wrap up, just uh, wanted to make sure to tell everybody, uh, FH Steinbart's, where are you guys located? We are on Southeast 12th and Pine in Portland, Oregon. There you go. And you definitely, uh, you should come in, uh, check it out because lots of great ingredients, lots of great equipment, lots of little bins filled with weird little things that you're just going to spend hours looking at. And also, very importantly, they have a whole set of books that have been mangled by two idiots. Oh, yes, and thank you so much for signing those books because that will make them collector's items, and people who are able to get those books will be able to get them here at Steinbart's at the regular cost. No increase. <laughs> Ta-da! <laughs> Plug away. There we go. All right, well, hey, uh, Michael, thank you so much for taking the time to uh, give well, us a little talk, and, and thank thanks you for, for having me on the radio. I appreciate that, and uh, I just want to let everybody else out there and your uh, listenership uh, to uh, encourage them uh, to go to Dean's uh uh, Facebook page and try to you know put some kind of contribution in not just you know for Dean but we're trying to start a Dean scene foundation where uh, we will buy the house and maintain it and keep it going as it was cool. yeah see that this is so incredibly awesome yeah I love it thank you so much well thank you too all right so that was Drew and Michael Brown from FH Steinbart company talking about uh, Portland homebrew legend Dean Pottle and I guess that uh, this is a good place to say that uh, even though uh, Dean was doing something kind of cool there, we do not in any way endorse running an illegal bar in your basement. And uh, Dean certainly had some issues around that uh, that thing, too. And, I know, but uh, still kind of cool. Yeah, you know, it's kind of cool, but uh, do it at your own risk, and <laughs> we're not we're not going to tell you to go do it. There you go. Uh, after we left Steinbart's, we hooked up with our good friend, Larry Clouser. Uh, Larry used to work for uh, Brewcraft USA, uh, among many other things you'll hear him talk about. When he was there, he was the guy who approached us about uh, wanting to get us to go out and do book signings and put together beer kits and stuff. And uh, a lot of the stuff that we've done since then was built on the foundation that uh, Larry helped us set. So uh, it was a real pleasure to sit down with him, talk to him about his new venture, Pono Brewing, and drink some of his really, really tasty pineapple colch. All right. And before you guys freak out about the idea of pineapple colch and fruit beer, and you know I'm not a fruit beer fan, 
this was damn good. Yeah, and you'll hear and me I'm talk not, right. And you, you've heard me many times rave about how I hate fruit beers and stuff. And it's like, this beer was done extremely well. It wasn't like a pineapple soda like you might be afraid of or something like that. So uh, we got together at Beer Mongers, a great bottle shop uh, tap room in Portland. Sat down with Larry for a little while and talked about uh, his life and Pono Brewing. Hey everybody, this is Denny. And I'm Drew. He, at least, he looks like Drew. Uh, we are sitting here at Beer Mongers in Portland, Oregon with our dear, dear friend Larry Clouser. Hi Larry, how you doing today? Hey, how's it going everybody? Larry has uh, recently uh, started brewing professionally with a, uh, he has a company called Pono Brewing and we're sitting here drinking his pineapple Kolsch. Yeah. I, I'm going to let you describe it. Well, I was going to say, I mean, the first thing is you look at it, normally I think of Kolsch as maybe being slightly cloudy but very blonde, blonde colored uh, hybrid ale. And yeah, this one is, this is straight up in the juicy territory of New England IPA haze. Uh, just in terms of your overall cloudiness, you know, so like holding it up to the light, you've got a a pretty uh, large densiosity to this. <laughs> densiosity. Yeah, they're a new word, densiosity. <laughs> um, but no, uh, and so you know, initially you'd, you'd be worried that that's going to kind of affect that sort of colshy thing that you want, where it's you know pilsner-esque with some more fruit to it. But uh, here, it's not affecting the body at all. We're still getting to a nice dry finish, very fluffy. And uh, we were just talking off mic, but uh, let's talk about it now anyway, because uh, this is the Pineapple Express Kolsch, and this has a very strong pineapple aroma, uh, but there's just a hint of the pineapple flavor, and it's really more that suggestion of the aroma that's carrying through on the beer and playing into a yeasty fruitiness. Now, Larry, you were telling us the, the yeast here, which is the thing that's keeping this a, a good and haze, and you're not finding the beer on purpose. Um, Tell us a little bit about the yeast and why why this particular combination, how this beer came to be. Yeah, so a uh, good friend of ours, uh, Alan Taylor, who is the owner of uh, Zuggle House Brewing Company in Portland, Oregon, also owns Pints Brewing and Honda Brewing in New Mexico as well. Um, he actually brought this yeast strain uh, back with him from Germany. Uh, he was uh, over in Germany working for some places and went to school there as well. Uh, has worked for uh, several breweries before opening his own place and uh, so he brought this back there with him uh, when we were developing this recipe and looking at uh, going pro with it uh, we decided to make some changes to what we had um, just from our small batch or, or home brewing recipes um, and one of the things we did was change the yeast there's there's a few reasons behind that one of them was cost wise you could say because when you open a brewery and although we are uh, a contract brewery, uh, right now every, we're, we're very cost conscious right now because of margins. You're still buying your ingredients. You Correct. Know. We still buy our ingredients. We have a, a huge say in everything that goes on there, um, lots of hands-on. Um, but our point was we had the opportunity because this yeast is already there being used uh, by them with their Kolsch. And so uh, we decided to actually make that change and trust a little bit of guidance from Alan, and we are actually very happy that we did. We think it's actually turned out a, a better product. Um, but before we made it, the clarity, it was a little bit clear. Mm -hmm. um, we were nervous, just like you said at mm -hmm. first about it, but it doesn't affect the flavor at all. No. Um, I, I, and to be honest with you, I think when people think of pineapple and the color, 
I think it kind of complements what you probably have already prejudged the beer in mm -hmm. in your mind, and I think it just goes with that. And it's it's a great summer beer, but it's a great anytime beer. It, it's really tasty because I had expected to get a really heavy pineapple flavor off of it, but. What it is, it, it, it kind of goes down clean, and then about 30 seconds later, you get a little pineapple yeah. in the back of your mouth, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. that's real, well, real nice. And I'm very much on the record of not being uh, normally a huge fruit beer fan, because I think a lot of times fruit beers are done in a very lazy fashion. Yeah. Uh, you know, oh, chuck some fruit in there, done. Um, new skew, we can take over more shelf space. Um, but in this case, <laughs> I think you've got a, a, a really wonderful interplay between that pineapple and the the yeast, you know, the the, yeah. fruity, the fruity esters coming from the yeast, and so you're getting kind of this reinforcement, but you're not getting insipid sweetness. And I think actually the the less flocculent yeast here is actually helping in some ways because I think it's also staving off a sort of extra acidity yeah. from a pineapple. Yeah, yeah pineapple is very acidic. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. I, I actually think that's you just nailed it right there with what the difference was between this batch. And our previous batches that we've done. And this this beer has uh, it has won a couple of years ago. Uh, one of the one of the uh, partners of Pono. Um, uh, his name's Josh Huerta. He actually won the Widmer Collaborator Award, which was where Widmer Brewing Company partners with Oregon Brew Crew Home Brewing Club. And whoever wins that competition, they brew it commercially. And so he won uh, for this recipe. A few years ago, there's been tweaks that we've made to this recipe. Mm -hmm. We all feel that it's been made for the better. It, this was probably our best batch of Pineapple Express we've ever made. Uh, and our goal is to actually stay with this recipe um, and not make any changes. We, we feel we've perfected it. It's also won uh, second place at last year's Portland Spring Beer and Wine Festival as well. So it's, it's nice. made a name for itself. People in this town definitely know the name Pineapple Express and what beer it's going to be. I think they're going to be in shock, though, when they try this one. Because this is probably the best, I think, version we've made, um, or best batch. And I think uh, once the public, it's like trying it for the first time again. Mm -hmm. And I think it's going to definitely uh, open some eyes again on the same people <laughs> who had it before. So so let's let's talk a little bit about Pono. Uh, Pono Brewing, right. I know. Oh, wait, hold on, hold on. I just realized, we've, we've now been sitting here drinking beer. And I think, of course, this is the problem. We've been drinking beer and talking to Larry. And we have a problem here. Yes. We know Larry. But we haven't introduced Larry. Exactly. <laughs> All right. Minor so, details, minor details. Uh, you know, you think that we'd be professionals at this after so many episodes, but we're not. We're drinking we're beer. beer. <laughs> we're beer drinkers. So, all right. Larry... Please, let's, let's do all the biography stuff now that we've uh, talked about the wonderful beer. Introduce yourself, give a little bit of your background, and how you became uh, behind Pono. You got it. So, uh, my name is Larry Clauser, and... Uh, so the way that, that uh, well, I'll give a bio, I guess, about myself. So uh, I used to work for Push Ridge Brewing Company down in Tucson, Arizona. It's uh, unfortunately has closed down. Um, literally, I got the job there. I went in just looking for work. Mm -hmm. uh, never worked in a brewery, never done anything. Uh, literally, I got the job there because the owner saw that I had an Oregon ID, I believe, or saw my resume, I was from Oregon. And he was a fan of McMenamins at the time. And keep in mind, I'm 42. I know. It's, I'm pretty old now. Um, you and me both, Lee. This I was, don't even remember 42, Larry. Uh, well, this, is, um, this was back in my that. early 20s. Like I think I had just turned 21, maybe 22. And uh, 
and so it's been a while. But I literally got the job just because the owner was a fan of McMinniman's Brewing, and he always wanted to open his own place because of his experience. He went to McMinniman's uh, in Portland. And um, he was working for IBM, took an early retirement, and opened his own place. And that's basically where I learned a lot about beer. Uh, to be honest, I wasn't a fan of beer at the time. I was used to macro beer, um, and I just I, I couldn't drink it. I would either drink hard alcohol or, is it safe to say I would drink a Zima every so often back then? And I look back now and can't figure out why, but um, anyhow. Well, uh, is, is Zima any different than uh, a number of some of these <laughs> strange concoctions that we're seeing? I guess maybe I should be a little ashamed to admit it, but that's that's that's, that's, that's what right, I was man. doing. Hey, hey. You know, cheap alcohol. It's in the past. You, you, you were, you were <laughs> a younger man. There were times when I gladly drank Milwaukee's best. Yeah, All right. it's whatever you could afford when you're young. So, uh, <laughs> so uh, you know, and I had a lot of great experiences there. Learned a lot about beer, uh, brewing beer, everything. Um, moved back to Portland, Oregon and uh, did a, a short stint up here for a, a chain called BJ's that uh, they've since then moved all brewing operations out of their facilities here in Oregon, but at the time they, they had a, a brewery there over at the Jansen Beach location and um, worked for them for a short stint. It was very hard to compete against the likes of uh, Vasily, who is now working for uh, Hill Farmstead on the East Coast, uh, John Harris, who now has Ecliptic, these are all big names that were there at the time. I just couldn't get the hours and, and put the time in, and they were trying to you know, fill me in bartending or whatever. And I just, so I decided to leave the brewing industry for a while and did a short stint in telecom. And uh, when the cr economy crashed, I decided I wanted to go back to doing something I loved. And uh, <laughs> I was say, wait, go, go from, hey, I'm beer guy to telecom. Well, you know, oh, yeah. I'm a hands-on kind of guy. I like doing things. I'm not a guy that likes to sit at a desk. And so for me, telecom, uh, I was a technician, worked my way up through the ranks and was head of training uh, for, uh, was their, their technical trainer for Comcast, basically. And um, decided to, or I, I left there and went to work for a company who made test equipment for the telecom industry. And when the, when the economy crashed, uh, they laid off basically all their sales department and uh, decided I wanted to go back into the brewing industry. And in my mind, um, I wanted to open a brewery because I, I was home brewing. I started home brewing. And I, I actually, unlike a lot of people who started home brewing, wanted to go to be a commercial brewer. I kind of took the opposite route. And uh, I started home brewing. And for me, it was really weird getting to home brewing because there were some things I just had a hard time wrapping my, my head around because trying to take it from a commercial level to a homebrewing level and and, uh, and just have somebody try to, to make me stop overthinking things and simplify it so I could understand it was even, uh, it was it took a while but I got it. But um, long story short is um, I went to go work for a company called F.H. Steinbart Company and uh, they took pity upon me I guess because I was on unemployment <laughs> and I had shopped there uh, for quite a while. Uh, volunteered, did some things for them, and uh, from there I went to work for a company called Brewcraft USA, which is a supplier for the homebrewing industry. We know them well. Yeah, they're one of our sponsors. They are sponsors. That's right. Well, uh, we'll have to say hi to all of them, and then from there I moved over to the commercial side over at Country Malt Group, and then uh, have just recently left Country Malt Group, actually last week, and um, and so now I'm focusing full time right now on on Pono Brewing. So it's. Uh, it, it has its own challenges. It's uh, it's fun uh, trying to simplify my life to pay bills right now is a, is a, is a big thing. But uh, it's it's great. The reception I've gotten from the brewing industry here 
uh, from the area that I covered. Everybody's been very, very supportive of it. They're very happy of it. They knew it was coming anyways, um, so they're just happy that the circumstances they are, it kind of made me do the jump. So. And so that was one of those things where everybody's just waiting for you to... Uh, Larry, when the hell are you going to get off the pot yeah. and go get the brewery going? Well, I've brewed a lot of collaboration beers with breweries around town. Um, have just... You know, all these guys, some of these guys that you're interviewing today, I know that you'll be interviewing, you know, Sean at the Commons, Ben at Breakside, uh, Van at, at Gigantic. These are all guys that uh, I used to go to to ask questions. Uh, I brewed a collaboration with Gigantic. I've brewed a collaboration actually with the Commons and Breakside as well. So uh, I've learned a lot from these guys, and uh, they've definitely been very helpful in giving me guidance. To be honest with you, the beers that uh, we made at Pushridge Brewing were very traditional beers. Let's be honest. IPA wasn't even a thing back then. Right. So you had your like your your pale ale, your stout, your, your wheat porter, beer. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> uh, uh, and, yeah and, and that's really what it was. But now that's not what I make. Now that's not what we do. Right. And so learning fruit beers was on my own as a homebrew, and I just I just did it because I wanted something different. Nobody else was making them at the time. But then I started getting into sour beers, and I will say that uh, Sean at the Commons it was just very very helpful. Uh, and walk me through uh, sour beers. Uh, Shilpy over at uh, at uh, Logsdon was uh, actually excellent at that. And Ben at Breakside, same thing. And actually, to be honest with you, Ben and Van, uh, Ben at Breakside and Van at Gigantic were actually uh, fantastic and just kind of helped me to get a uh, perfect my IPA recipe. Um, and so it's uh, been actually maybe even Ben when you talk to him later he you should ask him how he actually came to meet Larry and uh, it was kind of an interesting uh, introduction at an Oregon Brew Crew meeting where I had beer that there an IPA I made and he was there talking about IPAs and had his and uh, I think people maybe got a little too drunk off of my double IPA before he spoke and it kind of got to be a really interesting conversation but uh, I'll never forget it. I don't think Ben will either but I learned a lot off Ben um, well, to be honest wait, with you. If he was, if he was Drunk enough to have a good time from your double IPA. Oh, he wasn't. The, the crowd was audience. Oh, 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 but see, okay. uh, you know, Ben's a great guy, and he rolled with it. And uh, and I felt a little embarrassed because it wasn't a, a Larry versus Ben kind of a thing. And right. uh, to be honest with you, it humbled me and real made me realize I don't know everything. And sometimes you kind of just have to step back and it, maybe you think and you feel you make great beer, but don't ever be scared to admit that you don't know everything and and listen to advice of others and. Me listening to the advice of Ben about water treatment and, and how to improve the IPA that I made, which I thought was fantastic and is, but when uh, treat water do water treatment on it, um, it just made it a much, clarified the hops, made right. it pop much, much better. So Well, I think one of the things doing the podcast and, you know, the books and everything else, one of the biggest lessons I've had to take away from it, given that we have our Q&A segment, yeah, we just had a couple of Q&A episodes that really blew up and we had a ton of questions. Was, yeah, I, I, I've had to come to a point where I'm used to thinking, my, uh, I've got deep knowledge on a lot of subjects, but I've had to get used to the idea of like, I'm, I, I've got to man up and say when I don't actually know something. Oh yeah. man, that's I do that so often. It's like no big deal for me. Well, I know, but you're you. <laughs> I think when for me it was when I was younger. I had uh, I, I think a lot of people do, and I'll admit I, you know, and I had won some homebrewing awards, and I thought, yeah, I'm, I'm good. I, you know, look at me, I'm so great. And and were, and you, it walk, took, were it, you walking with swagger? Yeah, yes, you know, push my chest out as I walked. Yeah, right. Uh, you know, and and I think that little episode with with Ben. Kind of real made me realize. Yes, you make good beer, but there's always things you can do to improve upon that. Right. It, it also made me start analyzing my beer every time instead of just saying I make great beer. 
I would say to myself, and I think every great brewer probably does this, is where if I was to make a change, what would those change changes be? And then the next time, don't do all of them at once because you can't tell what it was that made it better or worse, but to do one at a time and, and document and take notes. And those that's yes. huge and important. A lot of homebrewers don't do that. Um, I think that's what takes you from just a, 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 a guy that's it's a hobby to now it's a, it's a, it's a passion and a lifestyle of homebrewing. It's the, it's the one that definitely takes notes and looks upon improving your practices and, and what you do. So. You know, there's a, there's a saying to the effect of uh, it's not science unless you write it down. Yeah. And that, and a courtesy of uh, honorary uh, experimental homebrewer uh, Adam Savage. That's right. He doesn't homebrew, but I'm calling him an experimental homebrewer anyway. <laughs> I love that man. Uh, so, so you contract brew. Do you always go to the same brewery to brew your beers? So we started over at a brewery called Culmination Brewing Company. Um, these guys are great. And if I can say anything, I would like to give them props because while I was working over at Country Malt Group in Brewcraft, um, you know, I was very busy. I loved my job. I was very happy doing what I was doing. But I still had this passion of wanting to open a brewery. These guys, you know, I, I, I go in there and I and I would just talk to them about what they're doing and they were really impressed with, you know, the knowledge and, and, and the passion, I think. And they kind of just really like sat me down and was like, why are you not moving forward with this? And um, one one guy in particular, Stephen Schaumler, who's very well known in the Portland area, um, he kind of just, you know, I would call him almost like a life coach. He kind of just changed my view on life. and. That he's been there for me on hard times and give me a lot of great advice. But one of the things he did about trying to open a business is sometimes you just have to make that jump. And now that I'm no longer working for Country Mall, it's really forced me into it. And uh, there is no looking back now. You know, before I was dipping my toes in the water, you know, and if it was too cold, I wouldn't go in, let's say. Now, you, you're, I, I dove in the water now. There's no <laughs> say, swim. You, yeah, you, swim or drown. Yeah, exactly. You have no choice now. <laughs> All right. Um, so we do have to do a couple of our traditional questions. Just here. a couple. Right. You got it. So what is your favorite curse word? Oh, boy. So before I tell you, my disclaimer is I'm a father, and mm -hmm. uh, I do my best to not curse, and I'm by far not perfect because my oldest will definitely oh, call me sake. out we're, on it. Yeah. With, with, that, with that being said, um, there's times, I mean, the F word is just the biggest, that's the, but that's like, my, as my son will say, when I say, let's say f when I say that, or, or whatever, he'll call it the F word. My point is, when you go right to that, he's like, Dad, not only did you curse, you went right to the top. <laughs> and uh, he's not afraid to let me know, and, and I, kinda, I chuckle and I say, yes, don't ever do that. <laughs> um, but having kids, I like to make up swear words sometimes. Oh, that's a good idea. And, uh, and uh, I would give props to Chris Farley on that one for uh, the words, some of the things he was uh, saying like, in his movies. Or like Darren McGavin in uh, Christmas Story. <laughs> when, <laughs> when the furnace blows yeah. up. <laughs> <laughs> the, the only thing I'm thinking is that you're going to cause embarrassing scenes for your children in the future, which are going to incur future therapy bills, well, which is going to be awesome. Well, I love it when they tell mom when I make it. It's, it's a made-up swear word. It's just like, huh, what? I, she doesn't get what they're saying. And, and they think it's a really, really bad word, and I just totally made something up. And that's that's when I, I know I did great, a good man. job as a dad. So Cool. All right. My favorite question. Now that you are a professional brewer, I can ask you this. Omitting the word balance, 
Describe your brewing philosophy. Easy. Ugh. I've heard. Listen, I'm a fan of your guys' podcast. Oh, that's right. I'm going to tell you. I, I used I to do a lot of road time, I and gonna, I would listen to these. I was just going to say, Larry used to call me when he was on the road, like at 10 o'clock at night, and say, "I caught something that's wrong." <laughs> <laughs> or I would say, "I agree," but <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'll add to it. So you know all about the no balance question. Uh, He's I practiced. Like, I like to use, and I think I've even told Denny this. I like to use the word feng shui. That sounds like a very fancy, exotic way of saying balance. (laughs) (laughs) But you said he couldn't use the word balance. Uh, Appropriately in its place. I couldn't use the concept. Fine, Larry, you have cheated me on my dastardly question. So I'll give you an example. We're talking about Pineapple Express before. One of the things we did not want to do was make a pineapple soda. Um, And that's the thing that a lot of people are are scared of or or feel or, or hear when you say you're making a pineapple beer. And so it is stronger than nose. Less than the taste, but I feel the balance is still there. Now, with that being said, I'll challenge you on what you consider balance, though, or feng shui. Some some beers, you want to focus on a certain ingredient, mm-hmm. and while it's not balanced, it's balanced in the end because that's what makes that a great beer. Yeah. So unbalanced can be balanced. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. exactly. With, with an IPA, yeah. your balance is to the hop. But right. the main reason for the question is obviously, I feel like. So many brewers, they're used to that sort of question, and, and balance is just an easy crutch to reach for, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it, it, yeah. It, it's an easy way out without actually having to kind of give some chewing to the answer. No, and, and I, I, to be honest with you, is and what we just said is unbalance is balance, and you mentioned IPA. With that being said, and I'm going to go back to the days of when I worked with Country Mall Group, is one of the things when I would go to a customer, especially the newer breweries, and now that I don't work there anymore, I can say this, um, it was encouraged. We would like to try their beer and it give us an idea. Is a brewery going to make it big? Are they going to do okay? Are they not going to make it? Um, one of the things that I hated hearing when I would go to a customer, especially a new brewery, and um, and it was more, more most of the time when I would hear this, they were home brewers opening a brewery, and... I would always hear, hey, try my IPA. It's a Pliny killer. And as soon as I would hear that, I did not want to try it. Because, I'll tell you, um, one, I'd always like to start at a nice Pilsner, because if you can do a style that there's no room for error, I know you can pretty much make anything. But two is, um, I don't think you should want to kill Pliny, personally, because at that point, it's not going to be drinkable at that point. To me, um, I love hops, but... I think that there is also, and I think this is what the trend is now, what you see on IPA sales for the IPAs that are making it big are the ones that have that nice balance between, they're still hoppy, mm-hmm. but they're going to have, they're drinkable, and they're going to have a little bit of that balance. Though. They're still hop forward, but they're still balanced with everything well, else. But, but I always thought that was one of the, bril- uh, the brilliant things about Plenty is that, I mean, for all the vaunted hoppiness of it, you know, you go, you have a glass of Plenty, it is really eminently drinkable. I mean, it, it is. I mean, it has a but would you prefer the elder or younger? I'm a. I'm a. I actually think you get a better bitter and hop character out of elder than I think you do out of younger. I like the younger better for some reason. But if I'm going to drink a Russian River IPA, for me, it's hands down the go-to is Blind Pig. Oh, yeah. <laughs> blind, uh, blind Pig is just brilliant. But, <laughs> but no, I mean, like seriously, with plenty, I. I swear to God, the, the magic plenty, and I think it gets lost a lot uh, because people are used to, like, you know, 
IBU scrapers, you know, where they're they're just trying to peel all the enamel off your off your teeth and, and all the taste buds right off your tongue, is that when you put a glass of plenty in front of you, I mean that is a beard that I mean it, get it a nice pint. It's got some good booze behind it, a little bit of malt, you know, just that nice, you know, little sweet, the sweet little touch, and a big bright hop character that is clean as a whistle and just sings right across your palate. Yep. And so I agree. I, I think the biggest problem that you get with a lot of people who are saying, ah, I've made a plenty killer, or, uh, or plenty killer, or whatever you want to call it, is they go for the IBU jam. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's exactly what they're going for. Yeah. And then it, at that point, it's just not and they drinkable. Miss the point. Well, yeah. And they miss the point. It, it almost shows a lack of creativity, too, because it's like, if, if you're going to make a beer intended to knock out another beer, then you're going to pretty much start by focusing on that other beer and not your own exactly. beer. Exactly. Yeah. I'll tell you what. It would be interesting if you guys ever had the chance to interview Vinny, mm-hmm. is to let him know that this is a saying that's out there. And ask him, in his mind, if he was wanting to kill Pliny or make a Pliny killer, what would he actually do? Because mm-hmm. I, I actually, my gut instinct... Is Vinny wouldn't be making these beers that a lot of these other guys are calling Pliny Kills. It would be something totally different. And that, I yeah. think that would be a very interesting topic for Vinny if he ever wanted to address that, actually. Yeah, well, and, and, and I mean, I also think... So, uh, you know, I, I know Vinny very well, and I love him to death. And Vinny is also one of the most open people about sharing. Sure. And... I suspect, and I'm putting words in Vinny's mouth, which is always a dangerous thing to do, putting words in anybody's <laughs> mouth, but I would suspect that Vinny would would take the tack of exactly kind of what some of what we were talking about, which is, you know, if you want to kill plenty, go take a different angle. Yeah. You know? And But I totally think, like, whenever you hear somebody say, plenty killer, it's, uh, I've injected 900 pounds of hop extract into this beer because I want this thing to feel like yeah. you're Face is melting. So yep. uh, before my batteries die here, oh. let's let's get back to Pono. So what's yeah. next for Pono? So uh, we have an IPA that's coming out, and uh, it was originally done as a collaboration with Gigantic Brewing. Uh, we did it a few years ago for the Willamette Week Pro Am, and uh, we didn't place with it, but it got honorable mention in a write-up with Willamette Week and some other articles at Oregonian, I believe, as well. Um, and so it, it's something that, that they're really interested in, in redoing because they're, they're, you know, they're, they're so busy on production right now and keeping up to, with demand. So uh, I made some tweaks to it. I'm going to keep it the same name. Um, I feel the tweaks that I've made to it are it may have made it better. So that's getting brewed this week. It's called Tropical Thunder. Um, it, to be honest with you, the name came from the movie Tropic Thunder, but we didn't want to call it Tropic Thunder because <laughs> yeah. we don't want to be sued. <laughs> right. So um, that was that. That's that one. We have um, some other ones coming out. We have a, a beer that's a it's a tea beer that has passion fruit and mango in it. It's more on the nose than it is the flavor. But as you know, your nose is more or your that's more of where your senses are coming from than your actual tongue itself. So that's why it does taste like that. And then um, we've got a few other ones coming down. Being new, we'll have some one-offs until hop contracts are established and everything's going to where we have it full-time and the name's out there even better. So um, just kind of focus, focusing on some of the core things that we've started and keep it up with demand. We've had a lot of people come to us to do, want to do collaborations. We want to. But we also have to pay the bills and get the beers out there that, mm-hmm. that we want to And you're to not make. bottling anything at this not point. Not yet. Right now, it's, it's draft, draft only. 
Um, so our people next in the Portland step, area want to find your beers, where do they go? Besides uh, here at Beer Bunkers. We have a Facebook page that we actually will we update with where our beer is on. We're going to list it by each type of beer and where it's on tap really? at. We have a website as you, well. You guys can do that in Oregon. Yeah. You can't in California. Yes. Yeah, the ABC in, in California doesn't allow that. But the great thing is, is in Oregon we can. So um, we have our website, um, ponobrewing.com. We have our Facebook uh, page. Please Please like us. We have Instagram and Twitter as well. We put all that information. We love social media. To be honest with you, we've been a grassroots op uh, operation from the beginning. We don't have any funding from banks. This is all just us from the start. Hard work, blood, sweat, and tears, and uh, and not taking no for an answer. When you tell us no, we just try harder. So, um, <laughs> so now, the obvious question people are going to ask, knowing that you're a contract brewer, is there a future direction towards? Yeah. So we will be looking at, we're, our goal is in 2017 to open our own tasting room and then we'll ferment on site. And at that point, just like, you know, the almanac method and everything else, it's basically when you ferment on site, you're classified as a brewery. We buy our wort from another brewery who makes it for us and then we ferment on site. Mm -hmm. We'll be doing a lot of uh, barrel aging, wood, wood aging as well. I mean, the three of us, we love farmhouse Belgian styles and German styles, but we all, we love everything. Life's too short to drink the same beer, and we are all about diversity, but we're also about don't diversify so much that each beer is not a great beer. Every beer has to be a great beer with us, and we will diversify as time allows, money allows, and as those perfection of those uh, come out. I think we found another victim for our uh, remote wort show. Yeah, right, right, that's right. So eventually we'll have our own brew house, but that's the second or third step away. Right. Absolutely. All right, so now uh, a, couple, a couple quick questions to close everything out. Uh, what interesting discovery have you made about brewing, or uh, what do you think is not paid enough attention to in the brewing process? Well, in commercial brewing, I will get uh, anything, anything. Or any home brewing, either way. In home brewing, I could probably give two different answers depending on which one you wanted. I would, I would say if you were to go pro, um, there's a lot of recipes we had as homebrewers that are not scalable and are just not going to make you money. You'll go broke making them as a commercial brewer. Um, with that said, never shortcut on using cheap ingredients. Um, there's a lot of, we've sampled and tried a lot of extract, you know, imitation flavorings. They are not the real thing. Um, this batch of Pineapple Express is pure pineapple puree. It costs us, to be honest with you, it's not really cost any more money and it's it's the real thing so that's part of the Pono theory is we really want to use real ingredients um, we do give by the way we do give an explanation where the name Pono comes from in our theory right. on our website please check that out as far as a home brewer um, for me what, what 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 set me aside as a home brewer is one taking notes documenting everything and then equipment upgrades that allowed me to replicate my recipes every single time. You know, I started on a single pot system and you just, it's really hard to replicate a recipe on that. Um, I you went go, and bought you a- You gotta be on time. Yeah. You gotta be tight about it. Yeah, I went and bought a Sabco. Not everybody has to. It's our pilot system that we use now to brew new batches on. Plus I have a, um, I apologize, I forgot the name. Oh, Grandfather, I have a Grandfather right. as well. They both are very, work very, very well for controlling everything. Mm -hmm. Um, and documenting stuff. I mean, it, it's, that's how we start to be able to replicate batches to know we could do this on a commercial level. So that's what I would say. Um, start documenting if you're not, and then try to replicate it. If you can replicate that recipe three to four times in a row, 
I think you're solid. And then don't be afraid of making changes, but only make one change at a time. Boy, this is stuff that we talk about all mm -hmm. the time, man. So it's yeah. really nice to hear you yeah. reaffirming that. Well, you know? well, and that's also because I get asked if you're my dad a lot or my little brother. <laughs> I, I, a, little, a little piece of... Uh... <laughs> Denny forgets enough of his life that uh, there's always possibilities. Yeah. Uh, Larry and I actually have the same birthday, although we many do. years apart. Yes. So well, he could be my dad. Yeah. Uh, well, all right. And so... <laughs> Uh, I swear I'm not. Mom, <laughs> well, hey, look, it, it's, it's we'll be on child support payment time. All right. Okay. Um, all right, so a couple last questions. Uh, what is something you wish more people would drink or explore? Don't be afraid. I, listen, I love um, great, amazing new craft beers, but don't be scared of the great classics. I love a nice Pilsner. To be honest with you, when I go to a place, before I drink anything hoppy or crazy great, I love all kinds of beer. Mm -hmm. But sometimes I just want a nice Pilsner. Right on. I would, I would, or honestly, a Hellas. And by the way, what a fantastic oh. Hellas by Bowie, by the well, way. Yeah, we yeah and, and, and we have a couple of glasses of the Bowie Hellas in addition to your phone because, yeah. well, mistakes were made. Yeah. Uh, but awesome beer. Yeah. Um, I, I would say that. I mean, don't, don't be scared to try. Also, don't be scared to experiment because sometimes, and, and also, don't go dumping batches right away either. Sometimes your mistake turned out to be the best mistake you've ever made, and it turns out to be a fantastic beer. Um, sour beers change flavor over time, and so do regular or clean beers, non-sour beers. And so uh, I've had some that I just had to let it sit longer, had to age, and it turned out to be amazing. Same with sour. I had some off aromas and flavors in a sour beer that it just took some time. Once again, this is uh, Sean at the Commons. Help me with that one. Um, don't be scared. I mean, if you don't have the space, I get it. If you have to dump it, but you know, and 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 make sure you use separate ferment, fermentation <laughs> yeah, right. vessels if you're using plastic. But uh, I would say, don't be scared of experimenting. Also, mistakes can can be turned around. Possibly, if it's not too bad, depends on what the problem is. Um, and if it is an infection, just clean up your sanita your your sanitary, you know, habits. But don't be scared of trying new things, and also don't be scared of the classics because sometimes that's the best beer out there. Well, and I was going to say, to your point. I'm one of the things I see is I see a lot of people doing kind of the dump and chase type thing where it's like, ah, oh, this is off, this is terrible, this is bad, and they eventually rescue it. I, I have a big belief in rescuing beers, uh, and um, I will also say just also learn to accept the fact that you're never going to be able to recreate what you did before. Well, document it if it's bad too. By the way, yes, that's what I always that's say. That's how you man. learn. You take notes because if it's good, you want to do it again, and if it's bad, you never want to do it again. Yeah. All right. Last question uh, uh, before we continue with our adventures here in Portland. Uh, what non-beer thing are you fascinated by or obsessed with? Uh, hot sauce and coffee. But I love, <laughs> That's I love, Portland for you, I man. I love fermenting my own. I love. I ferment some foods. We ferment hot sauce, by the way, and uh, nice. it's fantastic. I haven't made kimchi yet, but that's my next step. I like fermenting lots of things, um, but yeah, cool, those man. would be my things. So uh, we've been talking to Larry Klauser from Pono Brewing. We'll uh, put links to Pono on our website so you can go find it and uh, check out everything they're doing. If you're in the Portland area, you definitely want to try it. Well, and, and before, before we leave, though, I do think it's very important that we acknowledge the fact that, uh, one, uh, we're here at Beer Mongers. Beer Mongers is giving us a nice little corner. Uh, that we can uh, Great say bottle shop, yeah. man. They've got yeah. tons of stuff. Here. Uh, you may or may not be able to hear, but we are surrounded by refrigerators that are filled with fantastic beer. But I do also want to call out one 
solid fact, which is Denny. Yes. You very, very much blame Larry for all of this nonsense. I don't that we are blame early. Larry. I credit Larry. Larry, <laughs> Larry is the guy who uh, really gave uh, Drew and me a chance to get out there in front of people. And, well, he gave us a kick in the pants. Yeah, that's right. And uh, fortunately, he was right, and people didn't throw too much stuff at us. So uh, we, we totally appreciate uh, the Larry, uh, Larry's impetus in getting us going on everything. So thanks a bunch. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm happy I met you guys, by the way. You guys are fantastic. So. Well, thanks, man. Uh, and we'll see you on the air. Sounds <laughs> good. All right. Well, so that's our first segment out of Portland. That's us talking with our good friend, Larry. And really, seriously, honestly, we can't say enough about uh, both how awesome Larry is as a, as a person and the fact that he really did kickstart a lot of the silliness that we're doing. Uh, like Denny and I wouldn't have this podcast. We wouldn't have ended up in Portland if it weren't for, for Larry. And we highly, highly, highly recommend that you get a chance to go try some of Larry's beers. If you see them on tap, absolutely grab one. Uh, right now he has the Pineapple Express. I know he just finished brewing his IPA. So you'll see that too coming on the market uh, and really just give a chance to support. If you get a chance, make sure you support really awesome people like Larry. And uh, yeah, that's just the start of the fun that we had. Oh boy. My liver. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We, uh, we had three more breweries that day and uh, <laughs> we will have those uh, interviews coming up for you in, uh, in future segments of the show. Uh, it was a, it was a great fun, fun day. I'm just going to tease right now that at yes. least one of the uh, one of those interviews we talk about the plague. <laughs> yeah, really. It will be the only homebrewing show you have ever heard that has a in-depth discussion of the plague. <laughs> I just don't know what to say. <laughs> no 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 no, bo uh, no bonus points for uh, which one of us was the one who could talk about the plague the most. Yeah, really. Let me guess. Okay, so uh, I guess it's time for something other than beer now, huh? Yeah, so, I mean, this episode's running long, so let's do a real quick one. And, guys, guess what? It's not from YouTube this week. Uh, but this is uh, one of my favorite things is to read history of places uh, that I'm living. Uh, I get this from my grandparents. My grandparents were the sort of people that we could drive around in New England, and my grandfather would point out all these different places and say, oh, that's Mountain So-and-So, and your ancestor climbed here this long ago. And this is this pass. And I used to work here in the hut. And you know, that's a train that a train line that ran from 1918 to 1920. That was who my grandfather was. Uh, now you know where I get it from. Uh, so one book I just recently picked up was actually from a couple of years back uh, called a bright and guilty place, murder, corruption, and LA's scandalous coming of age by Richard Rayner. And, uh, People tend to think like big city crime. You think New York, Chicago, right? You think those kinds of cities, you know. But L.A. has a rich and hugely fascinating history of sort of big crime. Uh, the sort of not the mafia, but the system and how the system worked here in L.A. to control vice and gambling and drinking, including during Prohibition, and how religious uh, evangelicals played into that. And how all those groups together controlled City Hall and the LAPD and the LA District Attorney's Office to be able to protect their interest and keep the mob at bay uh, while making for this sort of very weird sort of thing that happens. And the story itself that he tackles here, it starts with the San Francisco 
San Francisco Canyon Dam Collapse, which is the same story you hear in Chinatown, the movie. But it goes into following two different characters, uh, Leslie White and David Clark, who are both investigators. Or Sorry, Leslie White was an investigator for the LA DA's office, and David Clark was a star prosecutor. And how one of them goes drastically, drastically wrong and into a life of crime. And so, really, really cool. Pulls in Raymond Chandler, pulls in all sorts of different stuff. So, if you're fascinated by that sort of history... If you're fascinated by finding out that uh, L.A. is not the big, bright, shining city of angels that everybody sort of plays it as in the in the movies and whatnot, this is really cool. Corruption as deep as anything as you would see in Chicago or New York uh, or even in like small towns, so- southern towns where it gets very parochial very quickly. So definitely, definitely pick it up. I'm having great fun reading through it uh, and uh, learning new things about the place I've lived for 20 years. Wow. It sounds kind of cool, man. I have to admit, yeah. even, even though I don't care about L.A. Yeah, well, hey, L.A. cares about you. <laughs> That's great. Because we're coming for your water. <laughs> so, a uh, busy episode here, huh? Well, what all we do today? All right, let's see. Well, we tackled some feedback, which was really awesome. Thank you for the feedback. Remember, again, feedback at podcastexperimentalbrew.com. Uh, we uh, told you where we're going to be. We also uh, went into the pub, and we had a long, hearty discussion about Anheuser-Busch's weirdest, strangest, newest move that none of us can fathom. We talked about beer bargains. We talked about uh, Caskmark. We talked about uh, funny things on Homebrew on the web, along with uh, the NBA podcast, which I think everybody should put into their ears. We talked about our good friends at Jaded and their amazing, awesome products. We went and we talked about uh, New England IPA results, whether or not 1318 or 1056 made a real difference in the beers. We went and we talked to Steinbart's. And talked about uh, running your own illegal bar. Don't do that. Uh, we also talked to our good friend Larry from Pono Brewing Company. And then finally, a little something other about crime in L.A. Whew, man, no wonder I'm exhausted. I know, and you have to edit. Ah! <laughs> Thanks a lot, everybody, for listening to Experimental Brewing. You can catch all of our latest adventures and writings by going to our website, experimentalbrew.com. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter. We're at Experimental Brew. We are on Facebook, Experimental Brewing. Uh, and we're like everywhere. I'm on a whole bunch of different uh, homebrewing forums. You can find Drew hanging around on the Reddit homebrewing forum. Uh, don't forget that if you have questions or comments, you can email them to us at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. Or if you want to talk to each one of us individually, I'm Denny at experimentalbrew.com and he's Drew at experimentalbrew.com. So until the next episode, remember to always brew experimentally. Or brew wacky. We'll see you on the next episode of Experimental Brewing. And hey, guess what? Next episode is our full year anniversary. We've been doing this for one full year. Holy baby Jesus. So come join <laughs> us for that episode, and uh, hopefully we'll get something uh, special together. That's right. Again, thanks a lot. Remember, brew experimentally, and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye.